ask a question, and I'm not going to get you to share with the person next to you, um, but I just want to ask you this question for you to think about. Have you ever been called out before? This past week, I was celebrating my birthday, and I thought I would never be called out on my birthday. My goodness. But I was called out on my birthday by our four-year-old Judah. We were having breakfast together, uh, and uh, I was feeling generous because it was my birthday, and I poured just a little bit of coffee in his milk. Parenting 101, do not give your kids coffee. It hits them harder and quicker than it would you. So I give him this little bit of coffee with some milk, and the waitress comes out to ask us what we want to eat. And I said, hey, this is our little secret. Don't, you know, don't tell anybody that you just had coffee with milk. And then the waitress comes up, and he goes, my dad gave me coffee. And I was like, oh my, like, it was no, there was no, like, hesitation or difference. It was like, right away. And she looks at me, and she said, wow, you just got called out. Later on, the next day, actually, I get called out again. And he didn't recognize he was calling me out this time. But again, Judah was hanging out with Megan at home. And he said, I want a snack. And she goes, okay, all right, I can get you a snack. I want dad's snacks. And then Megan's probably thinking, just because I eat so healthy, she's probably like, oh, it must mean, you know, an apple slice or an orange or maybe an avocado. And she goes, what snack does dad like? What snack are you talking about? He goes, I want the chips with cheese. That's <laughs> and so I eat, I eat a lot of chips and queso, and that's what he wanted. Or I eat nachos, and he wanted that as well. He was like, I want the chips with cheese. And so I got called out again for giving my kid not only coffee, but chips with cheese and nachos. And so we get called out from time to time, just like maybe not Judah or, or your son, but maybe you get called out by someone else. And now there is a calling out that is about to happen in this passage. Epaphroditus, if you remember this, uh, a, a person from Philippi, goes and takes care of Paul in prison. And as he's taking care of Paul in prison, he is talking to Paul about what is going on in Philippi. Now, we don't actually know what the conversation was like, if it was intentionally a little call out, or if it was unintentional, like the chips with cheese. But there is something that happened to where Paul is addressing Philippi now about a problem. And the question this morning I want us to look at is, what kind of problem would a healthy church have. If you remember when Ben talked about this, this was like one of the kind of uh, lights, if you will, uh, for Paul. And he's been calling out, you know, the church in Corinth. But for Philippi, he's like, I'm so proud of you. I'm so encouraged by you. Hey, I want to make your joy complete. And he's got joy while in prison because of their faith. But yet, he's about to address a problem. And so what would this problem be that even makes its way into a seemingly healthy church? Well, let's look at this together. It is in Philippians 1, 27. It says this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
So that's the banner, and now we're going to look at all the verses underneath it. Does your life lead people to Christ? That's what it's saying here. Does your life lead people to Christ? Now let's keep going. It says this, To that, whether I come and see you, or if I'm absent, like if I don't make it, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side. Standing firm in one spirit, standing firm with one mind, striving side by side. If you remember last week, we talked about standing together. The way this actually translates is it talks about standing like athletes. And so Paul is basically saying, this is a team sport when it comes to being the church. That you are to stand together, strive, work hard to stand together. The reason we do baptisms like we do, and the reason that there is applause, is because this is not just an individualistic event. It is a family affair. And so Paul is saying, hey, stand together as a family. This is a team sport. Having one mind, having one heart, one attitude, we're going to see later, it's one mentality that he's about to lay out. Have one thing in common. It's actually where we get the word community. Common unity. Community. And so for them, he's addressing, hey, actually be a community. Have one thing in common and stand together in that. Now, he's not looking for unanimity or uniformity. He's not looking for us to think alike or act alike or even look alike. He's calling us to one type of unity. When it comes to thinking alike, I shared this with Encounter Grace last week, but I thought it might be helpful here too. What he's getting at here is he is saying that you are to have unity. You don't have to think exactly alike, and you don't have to act exactly alike, and you don't have to look exactly alike. If you find two people that think the same way about everything, that means one of them is not thinking. If you run into someone who's like, I 100% agree with you. It's like, okay, that person may not be actually thinking through things. And that's what he's saying here. He's saying, hey, listen, I'm not asking you to think completely alike. You can have theological differences. You can have theological, if you remember a few weeks ago, you can have theological differences on the non-essentials of the Christian faith. But there is one thing, the essentials, that you are supposed to be unified in. And so now he's addressing what that thing is and what that begins to look like. So stand firm together as a family, as a community. And then stand in one mind. You don't have to think completely alike. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, but have this essential thing in your community. We'll get to what that is. Let's keep going. So stand side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened. We talked about fear last week. If you missed it, go check it out. We addressed what does it look like to look at fear in the face. Don't be frightened in anything by your opponents. Now, who are 
the opponents that he's talking about here. I think we have a quote from a commentator named Moises Silva. It says, the grammar of verse 28 seems to be this, that the conflict with the Philippians that they're experiencing should be understood as a reminder that they are but a part in the greater conflict or the greater scheme of things between God and the prince of darkness. And then Moises adds a little nice good news element here. And he says, and if God is with them, then who can be against them? And so the opponents are not, if you read Ephesians, I think we have this as well, Ephesians 6.12. So the opponents are not flesh and blood, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So what's he getting at? Let me just go ahead and lay it out for you. What's he getting at? He's asking them to stand firm together in unity. You don't have to look alike, think exactly alike, or do exactly the same things. But you're supposed to stand together. And don't be fearful or scared or frightened when something comes your way because you are going against the powers of darkness and they will not stand. So what's happening? Evil is making its way onto the doorsteps of Philippi. And he's saying, stand firm and, and fight that opponent. Because what's actually happening, and we'll see a testimony later. I won't give it away. But there's a really practical thing he addresses. Because what is happening is they're turning, they're beginning to turn on each other. Based out of fear and start fighting each other. And so Paul is saying, fight for each other. Not against each other. He's saying as a Christian movement, spend more time fighting this kind of enemy in Ephesians than fighting one another. Just very practically, today, where we're at in 2023, it feels, just, just me, it feels like Christians are fighting each other on theological issues more and they might be fighting the enemy, the real enemy. It's kind of like, oh yeah, we've got some differences, and because we have some differences, let's divide ourselves and start separating ourselves from people who have the same essential belief. And so what's happening is now there is division. The reason he's bringing up unity is because there's division among the Philippians. And he is saying, hey, listen, Fight for each other. Stop fighting against each other. Whenever the fear enters on the doorstep, what ends up happening is they end up turning on each other. And he's saying, don't do that. But in today's world, we do seem to start seeing how churches are making arguments. Oh yeah, because they believe, you know, because they're part of this denomination, no thanks. Because they're part of this denomination, no thanks. It's like a not theology. Well, hey, hey, what's your theology? Well, it's not that. <laughs> that's, a, that's a little weird over there. Not that. Well, what do you believe? Well, I, I don't believe that, and I don't believe that, and I don't believe that. And what's happening is there is this division starting to happen. I, I was talking to the pastor over at Grace Snellville about this idea and he said he was talking to people in his city or his community, if you will. And he said, 
People are starting to think that the unified church is becoming an oxymoron. Like unified church doesn't fit together. When people look on the outside, what you're starting to see is, oh yes, I see they bicker. I see they argue. And that's what Paul is addressing here. He's he's saying, hey, hey, listen, listen, listen. Please do not turn on each other, but stand firm together in this one idea, this one mind. And and listen, I'll be the first to say, I do get somewhat annoyed at other Christians. The Christianese, if you will, does bother me. I'll be at a coffee shop, and someone may say, hey, you have nations in your belly. And you're like, what does that mean? That is the weirdest thing I have ever heard in my life. Can I pray for you? I'm like, oh my goodness, I don't know what nations in your belly means. That's such a strange word. But at the same time, there is good things that are happening whether we like the words that people choose or not. God is still on the throne and Christ is being magnified whether we like the language or not. Whether we like how it, it feels like the gift is wrapped up. It's still a gift. And so he's saying, hey, we've got to address this. And so now Paul is going to address in the remaining passages, and I'll just skip to keep on going here. In Philippians 2, he's now going to address this problem of division, but he's going to give three solutions that we'll look at. And here's actually what he's doing. I'm going to move over here. I don't know if it's going to be a hot mic or not, but here we go. Hot, hot mic? Can I move over here? I'm good. Thank you. I'm, a, a, I'm still a student pastor at heart, so I have another illustration. It's not a jack-in-the-box like last week, so I know a lot of you were scared. Uh, it's not a jack-in-the-box. It's not a jack-in-the-box with a clown or anything like that. Um, I had so many people thank me that I actually didn't wind up the jack-in-the-box. Maybe that'll be a future illustration where I'll actually wind it up to see how scared you are. Um, just kidding. So... This is another illustration that I've used before for students. Please, Lord, let it stay. There it is. Anyway, um, the way that I've, I've told this to students when it comes to their behaviors that they want to change, I've said, hey, the, the balloon is like your behaviors, and the rock is like your beliefs. This is what drives you. This is your mentality, as the scripture will talk about in Philippians 2. This is your motivation. These behaviors are the things that you do on the surface. And so I'll have a student kind of come up, and I'll be like, hey, show me how you would move this balloon. And they would always move the rock or beliefs to then affect the behaviors. And they say, hey, there, I moved it from this end to this end. I picked up the beliefs. I changed the beliefs. And then the behaviors followed. And so we try sometimes, if we want unity, we say, oh man, we just got to go hard after unity. Well, what happens is there's some kind of belief at the core that is not affecting that permanent change. Oh, we want unity. We want unity in this church. We want to celebrate diversity in this church. We want to celebrate the love of God in this church. We want to celebrate these things. And so we try to do certain things, behavioral shifts, 
But it, what ends up happening is long term, it comes back to this place where there is disunity, division. And so what Paul is doing, he's saying, hey, here's the issue. The issue is division. And now I'm going to start digging deep because we need to change some beliefs. So that when fear comes to our doorstep, we don't turn on each other, but we respond in a different way. And so he's now going to dig down into the bedrock of our beliefs so that we can see a change where unity can happen. I'll just leave this right here. Oh, maybe I won't. Let's see. Please stay. There we go. Nice. And so that's what Paul's doing here. Paul is saying, hey, hey, here's the behaviors. Now we're going to dig down deep and figure out what these beliefs are. So let's look at it. Philippians 2, verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. Like, hey, I already have joy. We already know that. But he's like, this is going to be the cherry on top for me. Complete my joy. By being of the same mind, here it is again, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. And so now it says, so, therefore, if you want to change the behaviors of unity in the church, in your church, here they are. And he lists out these four things. Encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. I just want a practical thing. I did this last time when it came to the the kind of characteristics that Paul was talking about with his future. I kind of want to do that again here. I want you to look down at the text. Philippians 2, 1. Out of those four things, for you, individually, a part of this community, what are one of those things that you could be, by the Holy Spirit, called to grow in? Because what he's saying here is, this is the community of the church. The community of the church is encouragement in Christ. It's comfort when there's pain. And it comes out of a place from love. It's participating in the Spirit. There's affection and sympathy for one another. And so there's these four characteristics of what a church should be. And so now he's digging down and he's saying, hey, if you want unity, there needs to be these four things happening within Philippi. And so for you, a part of this community, what is one thing that you feel called to grow in out of those four things? For Meg and I, we have been a part of Grace for 13 years. And the reason we've been a part of this church for 13 years is for these four things that are brought up. I look back at our 13 years together, a part of Grace, and, it, and, and I ask the question, hey, should I still be doing this? And then there's encouragement that comes in Christ when being a part of grace. Is there any comfort from love? I'm going through this painful experience, this wild circumstance happened, and then the people of grace drew near and said, I'm going to bring comfort. You need food. Here's comfort food. If you need help with something, we're here to help you. I mean, this was crazy. We needed a house. There were people from Grace that stood up and said, hey, 
You can rent from us. And guess what? We'll drop the price to fit your budget, whatever it is. It's, it's like, hey, I, I don't know the direction for my life. Well, we're participating in the Spirit. Let's co-discern together. This is the direction, I think, that God is calling you to go. This is what grace is all about, are these four things. And for us, can we encourage, can we bring comfort, can we participate in the Spirit with affection and sympathy? And this is all wrapped up, the way that the Greek lays it out, is he says that this is all wrapped up in those last two words, which boils down to the word compassion. And so I'm only on point number one, and we're like 20 minutes in. So here we go. Point number one is this. Compassion fuels community. Compassion fuels community. If you even know about the word compassion, it's two words together. The word passion actually has the same root word as pain. So it's with, come, passion, pain. With you in your pain. And actually, the way that it really gets down to affection and sympathy is it's like gut-wrenching pain. It says, from the bowels of your being. That's actually how it's translated. It's like deep pain that I feel for the person that I am with. So point number one, he's like, hey, if we're going to dig down deep and get unity happening in the church, there needs to be compassion because that will fuel community. Now, that fuels it, that gets it going, but there's something that's going to help sustain it. And so now he's digging deeper. Let's keep looking. What is this thing that he is now addressing that is digging deeper at the core of the beliefs? Here we go. Verse number three. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. This verse right here has a don't do and a do. Yeah, I didn't want to say that because I didn't want to be childish, but you said it, so that's fine. A don't do and something you should do. And then there's a bridge in the middle. The don't do says this, do nothing out of selfish ambition. So ambition's not bad, but selfish ambition for their own gain is bad. That drive to lift ourselves up. Or conceit. The word translates as vain glory or empty glory. reason I want to say that is because you'll see glory coming a little bit later. But in humility, here's what you should do. Count others more significant than yourself. At the root of this first section is pride. Pride is the cancer of the soul. It's been ever since the fall, pride comes before the fall. Pride entered in, there's the fall, and now we've seen a ripple effect of pride that every human wrestles with. Even believers wrestle with pride. I love this idea of pride, and maybe it's because I've been watching Finding Nemo a ton, But there's this idea, if you remember in the tank, there is this puffer fish. And puffer fish get really big when they feel threatened. And so when anxiety hits that puffer fish, I can't remember the name. If you know the name, that's great. It's the voice from Everybody Loves Raymond. It's the brother. Anyway, the puffer fish blows up when it is threatened. It's like, look how big I am. And it even has spikes on the end of it. It's like, I'm going to harm you now. It just gets really big. It puffs itself up. 
The question that I have for myself when I read this is, where do I feel threatened? Where has fear come to my doorstep? If you remember, we talked about it last week, but like, where do I feel threatened? And then I puff up and then I lash out. And he's saying, hey, don't be like that. Don't puff. Don't be of empty, vain glory. Even if you're threatened, don't puff up. I was so tempted. I, I joined a, a fantasy football league here at Grace Marietta. Woo woo! Any, anybody? Come on, guys. Come on, guys. <laughs> and my first move when it comes to this is to talk trash. But... Because of this passage, I'm not talking trash. Because it would show that I'm threatened and y'all would all use it against me. So I'm not going to say, good luck to everyone because you're going to need it. I wouldn't say that. (laughs) But it's really because I feel threatened because I had a bad draft last night. So anyway, moving on. Not only do we puff ourselves up, but sometimes we puff ourselves up because we think of ourselves as insignificant. Going to the next part of the verse where it says, think of others more significant than yourselves. So there's sometimes a reason we puff up is because we feel insignificant. Or we feel insecure. Or we feel like we don't have enough. We can't amount to enough. We can never be enough. So we puff ourselves up and get defensive. Sometimes even offensive. And so it shifts here and says, hey, Treat others more significant than yourselves. But what is the bridge? What is the bridge here? The bridge is in humility. Point number two is this, is that community flourishes in humility. There's a quote by C.S. Lewis that I don't know if we have or not. Community flourishes in humility. Do we have the, in, do we have the C.S. Lewis quote? Do we have the C.S. Lewis quote that talks about what the definition of humility is? If not, that's okay. Oh, was it? Nice. Okay, I'll go ahead and say it. Cool. Uh, (laughs) Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. So it's not beating yourself up. Humility is not saying, oh man, I'm such a bad person. If you want to come into the office on a Monday or Tuesday and see what Benton Cranford is like, this is what it's like. It's like, oh, I did such a bad job. Oh my goodness. And then out of the kindness of the staff, they're like, oh man, you did such a great job. And then like the false humility fangs come out. They're like, I know. (laughs) It's like this weird thing of like, oh, I'm beating myself up. And then like, Benton, you did a great job. Benton, you're, and then you're like, secretly, I know I'm awesome. You know, that's false humility. False humility is like beating yourself up in front of people so that other people lift you up because you just want them to know how awesome you think you are. But the reality is, It's not about beating yourself up or having bad thoughts about yourself. It's just having thoughts of other people over your own thoughts about yourself. That's what humility is. And he's saying, hey, if we're going to dig down deep beyond the behaviors and get to some beliefs here, yes, what's going to kind of stoke it up is compassion that's going to fuel community. 
But community really flourishes in humility. I don't know if you have a hard relationship with your family, but if you want unity in your family, it starts with humility. If you have a business that's not going well right now, it starts with humility. If you feel like the church is at odds and you're having tension within the church when you come on Sunday or Wednesday, it starts with humility. If we're talking about division, wherever you see division, start with humility. Paul is saying, hey, listen, if we're going to be the church, we've got to remove pride and we've got to be humble. Now, we could tell ourselves, be humble, be humble, be humble, be humble. But what does that actually look like to be humble? Well, now we get the rest of the passage here. And so let's finish in this section. We're going to start in Philippians 2, 5, and we're going to go to 11. Now, this is a roller coaster of a passage. I mean, literally, it starts up about Christ it goes down to the bottom where the cross is, and then it goes back up again. It's also a roller coaster because it's like, ooh, ah, this is awesome. It's also a roller coaster because theologically it makes your head spin. You get done reading this, you're like, wow, I have a headache. It is like a roller coaster ride. And sometimes we think this is just theological. Paul is like, We think, oh, Paul is trying to prove a theological point to the Philippians. But as we've looked at this passage so far, we recognize this is not so much theologically. This is ethically, like how you're to live as the church. And so let's look at it with that lens, not theological, even though I'll answer some theological questions along the way, but it's an ethical one. Verse 5, here we go. Get ready. Strap in for the roller coaster. Have this mind among yourselves. Another banner that's getting put. He's like, have this mind. This is the mind you should have. If you remember the last banner, it's like, hey, if you want to live like Christ, or or, excuse me, live like Christ so people know that you follow Christ. Live like Christ so people know that you follow Christ. Practice what you preach. Now here's another banner. Have the same mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who, though he was or is or being, is the actual word, being in the form of God, did not, con- did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That was in there is actually being. Who being, meaning it is a present active participle, saying that Jesus was and is God. The word form right there is the word morphe, which is like the unchanging character. Your morphe is that you're human. The word he could have used was schema, which means a changing form, like I was a baby, Now I'm an adult. That is changing. I'm still human, morphe, but I was changing. Schema. Form here is morphe, saying Jesus, his character, his nature, his essential, is that he is God. He was God. He is God. He will always be God. Now let's keep going. Which is yours, Christ Jesus, taken on the form of God, did not 
account equality with God a thing to be grasped. That word grasped is like held on to. Like I'm holding on to this thing. He didn't consider it something to hold on to. Here it is. But what was he doing? But he emptied himself, surrendered, opened up his hands. He emptied himself by taking the form, that's actually morphe again, of a servant, meaning God is a servant. Now, what did he empty himself of? Well, it can't be, it can't be God. It, it wasn't like he was God, and then he became a human and no longer God, because he wouldn't use the word morphe. So it can't be morphe. It has to be something different. Well, what we see in Scripture from time and time again is that he has relinquished or let go of these divine privileges. Not his divinity, but these divine privileges or prerogatives. And we see this actually in a couple of passages. I don't know if we have it. Do we have John 17, 5? In John 17, 5, it talks about how Jesus was wanting the glory that he had before. And so he's saying, hey, when I am with you, Father, give me that glory back again. Says that in John 17, 5. So he's letting go of that kind of glory, some kind of glory, and he's going to pick it up again. And so he's letting go of divine privileges. Let's keep going. And he took the form, morphe, of a servant, meaning God is a servant. Being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. So now, before there was Jesus, Jesus is now born in human form, and we actually see this in Scripture. He is standing at the right hand of the Father. He is still in human form. It's not like non-human form, human form, not human form. It's now a morphe thing. He is now in human form, and he's still active. He's making intercession. He's praying for us. He's still in human form. When he comes again, he's coming in human form. So we see that he is now fully God and fully man. And as fully God and fully man, this is what he did. Again, think ethically about this when it comes to the passage. He what? Humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There is now the roller coaster hitting the bottom. Therefore, this is a cheesy pastor line. When you see therefore, you ask what it's there for. Therefore, is attached to verse 5, saying, have the mind of Christ. And if you have the mind of Christ, this is not just Christ's story, this is your story. And if they're hearing this, they're like, okay, we're at the bottom here. Talking about being obedient to death. Even when I don't feel like it, I've got to trust in God. But then he says, so therefore, here's what I really want to tell you. Therefore, God has now highly exalted Christ. What does that mean? It means that if he has been exalted, God will also exalt you. This is point number three. Humility in Christ here, humility fits us for glory. Listen to this. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed him on him the name that is above every name. Now, here's a Jesus distinction versus our distinction, which is why he's going to go into so that, in verse 10, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue 
confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord, Lord of all, to the glory of God the Father. So, there's a theological approach there that I kind of covered briefly, not in its fullest extent. But what about ethically as we wrap up? As we look at this passage, what we see is that he, Jesus, is coming down. It's, it's, it's like he's getting knocked down, knocked down, knocked down, knocked down, even to the point of death. If you think about the roller coaster, it also goes up. And then the Lord exalted him. He raises up from the dead. And so now that story is now our story. So if you wonder, why do we do baptisms this way? You're going down, death to the old life, and you're raising up anew. It is a symbol of this passage. It's saying, hey, I'm going to die to my old self, and God is going to raise me up into new life. And so that's what this passage is saying. And so he's saying, hey, if you actually want real glory, not an empty glory, it is on the road of humility that you get to taste that true glory. It's not why we do it, but it is how the Lord functions and operates. And he says, hey, take the low road, and he will lift you up. And so what does this mean for us as we close? Band can go ahead and come on up. As we've seen that compassion fuels community, we see that community flourishes in humility, but that the end result is that This humility fits us. It shapes us. It gets us ready for the glory that is to come. And he's saying, hey, here's the real motivation here. It is as you have the same mind or mentality of Christ, know that there will be valleys, but he will lift you up. So you don't have to puff up. You don't have to prove something. But you can say, hey, I'm going to follow Jesus down, but I know that I'm also going to rise up again with him. And it is in him that I can follow this type of pattern. And then we begin to see this kind of community. It's this true community that's found in humility that ends in glory with him. And so I just want to ask this question, where do we start with all of this? Where do we start when it comes to following Jesus in this way? Well, if you look at the very beginning of this roller coaster section, how does it start? It starts with him saying, (laughs) starts with Jesus saying, I'm not going to hold on to this. That's where it starts. For us. I don't have to hold on to this. I don't have to prove anything. Not only that, I'm going to empty myself. There is this amazing scripture that says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, meaning nothing. Dallas Willard says it this way. It's like saying, blessed are the spiritual zeros. That, hey, I'm unpolished. I don't have it all together. I don't even understand this theological thing. We have the text right here. This is what it says from Dallas Willard. Blessed are the spiritual zeros. They're the spiritually bankrupt They're the deprived, the deficient, the beggar, those without any wisp of religion. Those are the ones who inherit the kingdom of heaven when it comes to them. Why? Because they're not holding on to anything. They got nothing. And so, for us, 
if we're going to follow this path of Christ, this is where it begins, is in this place of surrender, in this place of letting go, in this place of recognizing I'm lowly. I got nothing to offer you. I'm in need of you. The prideful heart says, yeah, 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 I can make it on my own, God. I'm going to be like you, God, in the way that I'm going to be God above you. But it's saying here, hey, I've got nothing. Look at my life, Jesus. I've got nothing. I need you. He's saying, that's what I want. That's it. You got a need? I will fill it. You're empty? I will fill you to overflow. Stop trying to lift yourself up. He will, promise, he will lift you up. And so we come to him now saying, oh, I'm a, I feel like a spiritual zero. I don't understand this text. I don't understand what this looks like. I don't understand how to handle my family. I don't understand my future. I don't get it. I'm laying it all down. And I'm opening up and I'm saying, I got nothing. And he's like, that's exactly what I want. Will you let me fill you up? Or will you try to keep filling yourself up? I'm empty. He's like, that's what I want. I surrender. That's what I want. And he's saying, I will fill you. I will lift you. I will take you to new places with me. I'm reminded of the story of the shepherds watching the flock. They're nobodies. It starts in the passage in Luke 2. It starts with the passage of this king who is sending out a census, and it ends with shepherds, no-name shepherds, in the middle of a field, not making a lot of money, hanging out with stinky sheep. I mean, their life is a complete mess. And then they end up saying, glory to God in the highest. Why do they say that? It's because the glory of God came to them at their lowest. And so no longer do we have to say, oh, just glory to God in the highest. It's glory to God at my lowest. God has met me here and he is faithful to deliver me. He will lift me up. Just like he lifted up Christ, he will also lift me up too. And so I come and I got, I'm a mess. I got nothing to offer. If you remember last week, it talks about the, we talked about the faithfulness, faithfulness of Jesus. What's our response? Hey, you're faithful. I haven't been. And I surrender to you. I'm, I, all I want to hold on to is you. All I'm going to grasp is you. Walk with me. Walk with me into this new place. Let's pray together. Lord, we see this. It's not just an individual invite, but this is about community. And for our community here to grow at Grace Marietta, we see that there's compassion involved. Lord, I just want to say thank you for the compassionate hearts of this church. Thank you for this church helping my family out. Thank you for this church ministering to my kids. Thank you for this church caring about the next generation. Thank you for this church participating in the Spirit. Lord, when we feel 
weak in those areas as a church, Lord, would we look to you saying, we have nothing but you, and that is more than enough. And may we hold your hand and trust you that it's not just glory to God in the highest far away, but it is glory to God at our lowest. And we come. We say, Lord, change our hearts, not just for us, but Lord, may you compel us to love the ones around us where it says in Scripture that they will know that we are Christians by the way that we love each other. That the world may peer in, no longer coming against us, but may the world peer in being like they have something unique. And would that propel us to not go against the world, but be about serving it, transforming it for their good and for your glory. So we ask for that now, Lord, as we worship you. Amen.